morning, everybody. Uh, Happy New Year. It's uh, 2022. It's uh, crazy. That's how time flies. <clears throat> uh, as the new year begins, I, uh, I like to make New Year's resolutions. I'm sure uh, you've seen the email that Pastor Paul sent out, but I like to sum up the new year as something that would be indicative for me, and that is bussin', bussin'. If you don't know what that means, the young people say that to mean translation, something's good, okay? So I hope this year is bussin', right? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. The word that I, I hope for this year for me is discipleship, discipleship. So in all seriousness, I hope to continue to be discipled and to make disciples of those around me. Scripture reading for today is Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 15. It's Acts chapter 17, verse 1 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people on the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, as soon as possible, they departed. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Amen. Well, let me also uh, wish you a happy new year. Happy new year. Also to all, the, uh, all those watching from home, especially to all the kids watching, let me, let me uh, wave my hand again for them. If you're watching, kids, wave back at me through the camera, through the screen. <laughs> Glad you can join us. Uh, let me introduce your brother who is here for the first time. Uh, Her- I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Her- Herbis, is that right? Herbis Lopez is with us today for the first time. If you can just wait, uh, raise your hand for us, recognize you. Let's give him a warm welcome. Uh, but God's grace, 2021 is fully behind us, and today we gather at the church to begin the new year as a worshiping community. Uh, whether you're here in person or watching from home this morning, I, I don't want us to take this for granted, okay? The fact that we are 
uh, beginning this new year as a worshiping community, because it is by the grace of God that we are all here today. Over the past uh, couple of years, uh, churches all over the world have been shaken up quite a bit, and it's as if God has used these past two years to literally prune his church. Like It seems as if he's pruning. He has been pruning his church. And so it is truly by God's grace that we are still here as part of his church worshiping. Amen? I'm not sure if you're able to spend some time uh, looking ahead into the, the new year yet, but it looks like it'll be a very meaningful year for me personally, because as my eldest uh, will be turning 16 in just a couple of weeks, and uh, soon after that I'll be turning the golden age of 50. Right? Can you believe that? Um, I'm uh, chasing Joel sitting over there. (laughs) It'll also be my sabbatical year uh, where I'll be taking three months off to recharge and prepare myself to go hard for another six years after that. Uh, As a ministry, uh, we're planning to take on our brother Hihu as a pastoral intern later this fall, which will be a big deal, and also Pastor Xiong if you haven't heard, is expected to graduate finally from RTS after studying there for, it felt it feels like 20 years, but I think it's been what, I don't know, six, seven years, something like that? And with all the weddings and, and babies to be born, baptisms to administer, and new members to receive, there, there is a lot to look forward to this year. Well, let me also say that just like any year, uh, there will be some unexpected hardships that we will need to endure, and there may even be some great tragedies that we will need to face. But as God's people, we will face such trials and hardships, no matter how great they may be, with full confidence that the Lord is fully in control and that He sovereignly works all things for the good of those who love Him in Christ Jesus. Amen? That is the hope I have. Now, For today's message, uh, we'll be looking at chapter 17, where the Apostle Paul, with his team, enters into Thessalonica, which was, at the time, the capital of Macedonia. So this was no small city. And then we'll see him move to another city. And what you'll see is is a pattern, hopefully. There's a pattern uh, to his ministry. You know, he, he goes into a city and then you know, does his best to share the gospel with those who will hear, and then he gets eventually driven out, (laughs) and so he goes to the next city. You know, we we talked about this, right? He he shook the dust off his feet, and then he would move to the next city, and he shared the gospel again, and then he'd get driven out again. This man endured so much rejection throughout these missionary journeys, and he continued to persevere as one who was called by God to suffer so much for Jesus' namesake. That was his calling. Now, I outline this message uh, in three parts. Uh, part one, uh, we'll talk about God-honoring resolutions. And I, I want you to notice the Apostle Paul's resolve here, okay, uh, through this passage. And um, really, how much 
of an investment had to be made for him to go place to place establishing these churches. This was no small feat. And the part two, expected outcomes. Okay, so what, what should we expect as people committed to God's mission, right, to be in ministry uh, as ambassadors of Christ? What, are, what, are, what should be the expected outcomes? And part three, worldly motives and accusations. And uh, all, of, all of that is in here. And so we'll uh, try to hash this out together in three parts. Okay, part one, God-honoring resolutions. Verses one and two says, They came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom. And so, you know, if there was a Jewish synagogue present in a city, it was Paul's custom to first engage with his fellow Jews. Why? Well, because, you know, they at least shared a commitment to the Old Testament scriptures. And so Paul could start there, right? He could, that could be his starting point, right? And, and that could be, uh, that can give him an opportunity then to, to share that Jesus was indeed the promised Messiah. That was his strategy and tactic. But I think it's worth noting that this process, though, though it may sound so routine and, and simple to us, Let's be clear, more often than not, this was a very time-consuming process, and it required a very large emotional and intellectual and even financial investment. I mean, this, this is a, I mean, over a years-long journey moving from place to place. I mean, who was going to support him? You know, he was hoping that there would be guys like Jason housing him, right, these random strangers along the way, and churches like Philippi offering some funds. But he also had to work. He was known to be a tent maker, a literal tent maker, right, to get some income uh, throughout the week so he could eat, right, and, and uh, provide him some shelter. So this is a very time-consuming, uh, very high investment uh, moving from place to place. I, I was reminded of a pastor whom I uh, deeply respect. Uh, he's still in ministry. Um, He's in California now, but, uh, you know, when he was, one of his first churches was a church in Amherst, Massachusetts, and I was there as a student. I had nowhere else to go during the summer months, and so I stayed on campus, and he was gracious enough to uh, offer some discipleship uh, throughout the, you know, three months we were there, and uh, there weren't that many students, I mean, it was just me and two other sisters who decided to join this discipleship group uh, he was leading. And, uh, I mean, we, it was a ministry uh, that the Korean church offered. The, the college ministry didn't have a stable EM pastor at the time, and so it was just basically him and some college students. And his English wasn't perfect. Sometimes it was a little frustrating to listen to him, but uh, his English was good enough. He could communicate. We could understand Right? And he invested his time, his energy. It wasn't easy for him, for sure. One time I remember after the discipleship meeting, he took us to a place to eat. And he wasn't, it was a small church. He wasn't a rich pastor. I'm sure his budget was tight, but he offered to pay. And I had no money, so I wasn't going to say anything. <laughs> He's going to eat. But uh, some of this, one, one sister, she did say, you know, Pastor, you know, let us pay. You know, we should be paying you. We should be, you know, offering <laughs> 
um, support for you. But he said, no, this is, this is an investment I want to make. And, and that, that's the first time I understood, I, I, I looked at it from that perspective, that he was actually investing in us. He was sacrificing, right, for the Lord's sake, hoping that we would become faithful followers of Christ. But it was an investment, right? There were real sacrifices being made. You know, in the Apostle Paul's case here, it says that he spent over three Sabbath days. That's at least three full weeks in this one place. And what does it say that Paul did with them exactly? You know, what was his schedule like? Well, we're, we're given a basic summary. It says that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Don't overlook that, okay? He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Then what? He explained the Scriptures to them. And he proved that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. But I want to just highlight once again those three words, okay? He reasoned. He explained, and he proved. That's why I mentioned this was an intellectual feat. It was not just a a time-consuming effort, but it took a lot of mental energy to do this. Please don't take this to mean that all we ought to do as a ministry whenever we gather is to focus on the Bible and, and just do Bible study every time we meet. That's not my point, okay? There definitely is room for casual fellowship. There definitely ought to be room for like just building some relational rapport with others. That's fine. But honestly, my concern is that many people, even in the church, seem to believe that it's just not worth reasoning with others anymore, right? That it's not worth proving to others that Christianity is true and that other religions are not. People do whatever they can to avoid such topics. They somehow want to downplay the importance of engaging with people at an intellectual level, challenging the way others think. But notice that's exactly what Paul resolved to do in the synagogues. Day after day, he reasoned, he explained, and he proved Jesus is the Christ. Not just once, right, but over an extended period of time. You know what this means? I'm not sure if you ever thought of it this way, but this means that our Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It wasn't meant to be based on blind faith or a mindless faith. The Christian faith is not an illogical faith illogical faith. It's not an illogical faith. It's rather based on sound evidence. There's evidence of Christ's birth. There's ample evidence of what Jesus taught and, what he, and who he claimed to be. And there's evidence of his suffering and death that leads to the most important piece of evidence, which is the evidence of his resurrection. And those are pieces of evidence that any intellectually honest person cannot easily ignore. Our Christian faith is a reasonable faith. Never forget that. In seminary, I heard this expression for the very first time, and it really challenged me. That the expression was that as believers, we are to think God's thoughts 
after him. We are to think God's thoughts after him. Have you ever heard that expression before? That may not sound very impressive to you. (laughs) If it doesn't, that's okay. I'm happy for you because that probably means you're that much more mature than I was when I was a first year in seminary, right? You know, when you're young, the Christian life, it tends to be mostly about what you feel, right? It tends to be about pursuing those emotional highs. And so when I was a young Christian, you know, the idea that our sanctification also meant that the Holy Spirit was working in me, right, to change my mind about how I thought about Jesus or how I thought about the Bible or how I thought about my lifestyle or even my body, food, right, sex, marriage, money, church, politics, everything. When it finally clicked that it wasn't just about my emotions, my feelings, if I felt that Jesus loved me or not, then I was able to look at passages like, love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind in a different way. Right? That, that kind of, it had a, more, a greater impact upon me. It had more meaning for me. Sometimes you hear people say, we can't try to win arguments as Christians. You know, people just, they don't come to faith through arguments. Or I've been hearing this one a lot lately. Don't you know that we win by losing? Don't you know that the cross teaches us that we win by giving, when we give our power over to people and when we lose intentionally, that's when we start actually winning? Now, I understand why people say that. There is an element of truth in that statement, but it's a half-truth. It can be very misleading. It's dangerous, actually, when you try to apply it to every aspect of your life, the idea that we win by losing. Because the Bible is crystal clear about our responsibility to not surrender and to not submit to the evil one and his lies. Let me give you just two verses to think about, <clears throat> two passages, rather. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and you see how this sort of compares to the concept of we win by losing. <clears throat> 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3 and following, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. In other words, he's saying if If our enemy truly was the flesh, then you know what we should all be doing? We should be investing heavily into AR-15s, okay? Ammunition, because that's where the real battle is. That's how physical wars are won. Paul says, no, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Verse 5 is crucial. We... Destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God 
And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Does this seem like he's saying that we should not bother at all with arguments or reasoning or proving or explaining? Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. It's related. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. See to it that no one takes you captive. See, if, if you're not committed to engaging with people and reasoning with them and, and offering evidence, then you're giving in, essentially. And you will be taken captive by human philosophy that's not centered on Christ. You know how that works. You become mentally lazy. You just kind of go with the flow. We see that with our younger generation. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the kind of resolve that we all need to have as believers. The resolve that we see as Paul's ministering in the synagogues of reasoning and explaining and proving that Christ is Lord. So even though many Christians may be guilty of doing it, let's, let's not downplay the importance of these things, which takes us to part two of the message. Part, number, part two, expected outcomes. What should we expect when we reason and explain and seek to prove that Jesus is the Christ well, verse 4, Paul is in Thessalonica here early in this chapter. Here's the first expected outcome. This, the first expected outcome is this. Some of them were persuaded, okay? Some of them believed. They were persuaded, and they joined Paul and Silas. And so Paul and Silas' team was basically growing. So some were persuaded, they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Basically, a lot of women joined as well, it says. Okay, what's another expected outcome? So that, that's the good outcome. Well, here's a negative outcome. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. In other words, a riot happened, and they attacked the house of Jason because Jason was hosting these missionaries, imagine that, you were hosting, trying to be kind and generous, you're hosting, and then all of a sudden, a mob is after you. So eventually, they get driven out of Thessalonica, Paul goes to Berea, it says that there were people of noble character there, they at least gave Paul a, a, more of a chance, and they were, actually examined the scriptures as he was explaining the scriptures to them. But again, here, here's an expected outcome. Many of them, therefore, believed, along with the women and men in, in high standing. But here's a negative outcome. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, guess what? The mob followed them to Berea, and they agitated and stirred the crowd up. So you have both positive and negative, right? So brothers and sisters, I simply ask you this question. What should we expect anytime there's faithful gospel witness present in a community? 
Shouldn't we expect the same? So first, we should expect at least some, right, to be persuaded. If it was a place like Berea, maybe many would come and believe. But if it's any sort of average place, we should expect at least some to be persuaded. Yes? Wide is the gate that leads to destruction. And narrow is the road that leads to life is the norm. I think the problem is that sometimes we have this expectation that everyone is to like us, that everyone is supposed to like us. But that's an expectation we ought never to have because it's been made clear to us that that's never to happen. It's never going to happen. In fact, we're told rather that the vast majority of people, no matter how clearly and lovingly we speak to them, they will reject the message. Some of them will even hire people to create mobs and threaten believers of their livelihood, as we see not only in this passage, but in our present day as well. There's a well-known saying that goes like this, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. I think that's pretty helpful to keep in mind. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. This saying is meant to serve as a humbling reminder to all of us that the same gospel which melts some hearts to repentance, guess what, also hardens others in their sins. That is definitely a burden we Christians are called to bear as we share the message of Christ. It's not easy to know Whenever you speak God's word to people, a good number of their hearts, a good number of hearts will harden regardless of how well your message has been delivered, regardless of your intentions, regardless of how loving you were to them. That's the burden the preacher bears every week. You think this is easy? That's the burden. I know that when I speak, some hearts will soften, will melt like wax, but some hearts will harden. That's not an easy burden to bear. But that doesn't mean that I can choose not to share God's word or that I'm allowed to change the message to make it more palatable to others because We are ambassadors. We are not kings. We don't decide on what the message is. Keep that in mind, please, as you live your lives in this crooked world. Now, some of you might be wondering, why why is there so much of an extreme response by these Jewish men? I mean, look, why, why, why are they organizing a riot to get hold of Paul? So let me remind you of something so basic yet often ignored because it honestly makes gospel witness very inconvenient. That's why it's ignored. We like to focus on the easy stuff, the feel-good stuff. We don't like to focus on the stuff that makes us uncomfortable, makes everyone else uncomfortable. So let me remind you that when Paul proclaimed that Jesus was the Christ, it wasn't simply meant to be this personal 
private message only relevant to the people who would receive the gospel. Right? No. That, that might be a, you know, just a small part of it. You know, because if, if that's what the gospel was in its entirety, then guess what? No one would have a problem with it, especially Rome. Rome was is very pluralistic and polytheistic society, right? They, don't, they didn't care what you worshipped. But what they did care about was whether you challenged Caesar's supreme authority. And you know what? The gospel did. And so the gospel was not only a personal privatized message only to specific people receiving it. It actually was a public declaration right, that Jesus was not only the Savior who bled and died for our sins, but he was also the Lord to whom every knee was to bow and that included all of the Jews and all of the Romans and even Caesar himself. And the Jews knew that. Right? It was a hard pill for them to swallow because their entire livelihood revolved around their Jewish identity. But that was the implication of Jesus is the Christ. That meant that he was also Lord. That's what led to the eventual martyrdom of the apostles. Rome didn't like that, the fact that they were challenging Caesar's supremacy. And that's the exact charge, right? If, if you're paying attention, that the Jews make against Paul to get him in trouble here in this passage. Verse 7, right? These men are acting against the decrees of Caesar, can't you see? He, they're saying that there's another king. This Jesus, that he's the king, not Caesar. So they know what's in play here. They know exactly what the gospel implies. So they try to use that against the apostles and to get them in trouble. Part three, worldly motives and accusations. Let me read from verse five, just verse, uh, verse five and six. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and an attack on Jason. Okay, verse 6. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. That's the accusation. These men have turned the world upside down. So let me, let me though, first comment on the motive that's mentioned in this passage. What's the motive? The motive is jealousy. Right? And to me, when I first read that, that's, it, it forced me to, to think about what's the connection? How? how? How does jealousy lead to mob violence? You know? So it, it wasn't as if they had a you know, disagreement with, with uh, the content of what was being preached. And it wasn't as if they were trying to disprove the actual content here that Jesus was the Christ, but it, it says that jealousy is what motivated them to pursue violence 
and create a riot. And so I'm asking you, well, how does that work exactly? Well, I think it works this way. You know, wanting something so badly that you can't have it because it doesn't belong to you. Right? I think that, that's a good definition of what jealousy is, right? That's the essence of jealousy, is it not? Wanting something so bad that you can't have it because it doesn't belong to you. And I believe that's what's ultimately beneath the surface of every rebellious heart. Because a sinful human heart does not want to submit to the lordship of Christ. What does it want? It wants complete autonomy. It wants complete freedom from God. It wants to determine on its own what is right and wrong. See, but that authority does not belong to us. It belongs solely to God. And so the sinful heart desperately wants what it can never truly have, which is why I believe jealousy is behind every rebellious heart. Let me also comment on the specific accusation made by this mob, which was, again, that these men have turned the world upside down. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here. And, you know, as a young Christian, I think some of you may be able to relate. I remember thinking of this to be a positive expression because I, I heard it several times being proclaimed in the context of like a youth rally, right, or a college revival. You know, these pastors would use it as a rallying cry for my generation to go forth and turn the world upside down, <laughs> like in a positive way. It's like, okay, I guess let's go. Or as Michaela would say, let's go, right? Let's do this. Let's turn the world upside down. And I'm not really faulting the pastors for using it that way. This, you know, but I didn't understand the actual context as to when it was first used. And I want you to know this, that this expression, when it was first used in Paul's day, they were meant to be not a positive expression, but a demeaning one. It was a demeaning expression hurled at Christians because these Christians were refusing to go along with the widely accepted norms of the day. You know? It was, look, we were all doing rather fine living our lives until you guys came along and began to turn our world upside down was the accusation. You're messing things up. That's what's being said. So I want to be clear here. That's, that's not an accurate picture of what took place. You know, in, in our day and age, I want to be absolutely clear on what the truth is. Right? The truth is that when God created the world... That is when the world was right side up. Right? That was a perfect world 
we could say that was a world when things were right and good, a right-side-up world. But then what happened? Starting from Genesis 3, sin enters into the world, and the sinfulness of man is what turned the world upside down. Let's be clear about that. I'm not playing word games here. It's important that we describe reality the way God sees it, because that is the truth. And we don't want to downplay the significant role that we are called to play in this world as God's ambassadors and his agents of change, you see. See, we're, yes, we are to influence the world in a significant way, but it's not that we're the ones turning the world upside down. That is incorrect. That is misleading. The truth is that we are called to share and proclaim the word of God in order to reverse the effects of the curse and to turn the world right side up again, right through the power of God as he works through us and in us. That is a more accurate description. And that's one reason why People hate genuine Christians. It's because they hate the truth of God's word that threatens their autonomy and their way of life. I want to help you see how this spirit of rebellion has been working itself out in recent days. So I don't just want you to be, you know, thinking about the context of the Bible here, but let me pull you out for a moment and bring you to our context here, right? Things are messy in our day. This may be some fresh news to you, and if it is, then I encourage you to uh, expand your news sources. I've been recommending some uh, podcasts and some people to listen to. Uh, some folks who will help you understand how our culture is being shaped today. But the news is this. The government of Canada, I know we live in the U.S., not Canada, but you know what? Whatever happens in Canada, the trend has been eventually it trickles down to the U.S., right? And so it's going to come soon. The government of Canada has recently adopted a radical ban on what the government calls conversion therapy. Okay. That, that itself, that, that might not sound too bad to you, but uh, let me explain a little more. Because it's considered to be radical by Christians, this policy, because Canadian law defines conversion therapy as any practice, okay, any practice, any treatment, any service designed to change or repress a person's sexual orientation or a person's gender identity or a person's gender expression. Let me just give you what the NPR report says, okay? Um, this is a moderate liberal news source. And so, I mean, <laughs> they, they think they're so, like, righteous and how they report, but I mean, this, this is, yeah, this is what's happening, right? It doesn't shock them at all. They're praising it, but um, 
NPR reports that these techniques can range from simple speech, like talk, and behavioral therapy to medical treatments. Okay, so these conversion therapy doesn't just mean like injecting chemicals in someone, right? But it includes also regular speech. And it says this, this was Canada's third attempt at banning the practice nationally with the Toronto Star noting that the bill went farther than previous versions by making it a crime to have anyone to undergo conversion therapy regardless of whether they consent. Right? So notice the word crime. <laughs> you, you can be criminally charged to even speak about these things, to speak against these things regardless of whether the person consents and asks you for help. This is amazing stuff. It's a radical, it's a radical policy, a radical law. They continue, it continues on. The text of the bill says it harms society because it is based on, that, that is, conversion therapy harms society because it is based on and propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth, pay attention, that heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. I hope you caught that. In other words, if you're just someone who believes that it's best to call yourself a man because you're born male, right? And call yourself a girl because you're born female, right? That, they consider that a myth. <laughs> you have a problem in your thinking, right? So what's, what's upside down? What is right side up? Al Mohler chimes in, and he writes, this could well mean a ban on authentic biblical Christian ministry, in Canada, because criminalized in this law is not only what might be defined as conversion therapy, what is also now legally forbidden is what would ordinarily be described as simple Christian ministry. Write down the churches teaching on this issue, counseling with their own church members, and even praying with them over these issues are technically all forbidden according to this law few more sentences. LGBTQ activists in the United States want at least to bring about the very same shape of legislation, and this really is one of the most clear threats to the integrity of Christian ministry that we have faced in our lifetimes. He, he's not exaggerating. He, he, is, he has been fairly spot on uh, over the past, I would say, 20, 30 years when it comes to cultural issues, right? seeing trends and how things develop. Right? He continues, and you're going to see the stakes in these controversies just get higher and higher because both sides recognize a fundamental truth. Right? This is very crucial. Both sides recognize, it ties into our message today, that the great intractable, immovable, non-negotiable obstacle to the full legitimization of the LGBTQ plus agenda and all that will follow is what? What is the non-negotiable obstacle? It is 
the word of God. That is the bottom line, and both sides recognize that. That's why there is attack made against the very word of God. Silence the word. There's an attempt made to silence those who would proclaim the word of God. This is why people feel threatened by the gospel. This is ultimately why people reject God's word, because it is the only authority that stands in the way of them getting what they desperately want, which is, again, freedom from God, complete autonomy. That's why jealousy is behind every rebellious heart. They want what they cannot have. And I said it before, but what happens in Canada will eventually trickle down to the U.S. That's what happened, if you didn't know, with these wacky gender pronoun policies that's been thrust upon us these past two years. That's where it came from, okay? It happened up there first, and then it just kind of hit us, got blindsided by it. It's going to happen again with these new conversion therapy laws. This is a real tragedy, but that is the direction the world is going. And in order for us and our children not to give in to these lies, we're going to have to have the resolve to withstand the mocking, the scorn, the real threats that may affect our very livelihoods, I'm sorry to say. But our personal resolve will mean nothing unless it is rooted in the promises of God through Christ so In closing, uh, let me read to you a portion from 1 Peter. It's a very, very appropriate passage for us to consider because Peter is counseling, he's writing to his beloved followers who are fearful of what may happen to them in the world they're living in. And uh, he asks them to be ready to defend themselves, their faith, uh, but also to, to ground their hope, not in who they are, but in who Christ is and what Christ has done for them. And so that, that should be our posture as well. Okay? First Peter chapter 3, verse 14 and following. Try to really hear this. May the Holy Spirit speak to your hearts directly. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. In other words, don't storm the capital. (laughs) Do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better for you to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Did you hear that? Can you believe this is coming from God is better it's better for you to suffer we who hate to suffer right we who do everything possible to avoid suffering 
It is better for you to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will, then for doing evil, then for disobeying God. Verse 18, he, he roots this in who Christ is and what he has done for us. For Christ, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So how, how are we to live, brothers and sisters? Are we to look to ourselves, to muster up the strength and courage? No, we were to look to Christ who has suffered for our sake that we may be alive by his spirit. So let's look to him as we begin this new year and let's strive to remain faithful as God perseveres us by his spirit. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Father, Christ suffered and died and was raised from the grave, proving himself to be the King of kings and Lord of lords, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, from the world's perspective, it will seem as if Jesus is turning the world upside down, but in fact, it is he who is turning this fallen world right side up. Lord, help us as your people to live with such confidence in your lordship as well as a clear understanding that we, as your people, are called to be your hands and feet and your faithful ambassadors who courageously speak your truth on your behalf into a fallen world with much love and compassion to save as many as you will allow. We confess that we feel the increasing pressure to give in to the lies of this world. So in this new year, Preserve our faith and our resolve to live under the Lordship of Christ, no matter what the consequences may be. We continually entrust our lives to you in this new year. We also acknowledge that the spiritual health and vitality of our church is ultimately in your hands. So keep us in your grace for another year, we pray. All this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. You stand with me, give God praise.